You are listening to the Fellowship Church of Burbank Weekly Sermon Podcast. You can find more information about the church as well as hear more messages from Pastor Robbie Pitt at www.fellowshipchurchofburbank.com. We're in a series, we've been in a series here in church um, called Finding Our Place in God's Story. We're taking several weeks, kind of a big picture flyover of the entire story of the Bible. And Robbie, um, you know, has said that we're trying to get a picture so that anytime you go into the Bible, when you look at it, you know, there's a lot of pages, although increasingly we're doing digital versions now, right? So, you know, if you look at your Bible on here, there's not so much. But if you have a paper version, you know, there's a lot in there. There's a ton in there. And there's all sorts of things that are 2,000 plus years old and traditions and things. And so where, you know, where do we fit in? How does it impact us? Uh, we're trying to get a big picture overview, so any place you step into, you can say, I know where we're at in God's story, and I know how this connects to Jesus and what he's done, and I know how I can learn about what God has done here and how that can apply to my life. Uh, one of my favorite teachers is a guy named Leslie Newbegin, um, who was a missionary uh, and pastor to India, and this is one of the things he says about finding our modern society in God's story. He says this, One of the marks of contemporary society is that there's a widespread loss of any sense of history or meaning at all. The 19th century beliefs of progress have largely disappeared. It's hard to find people in our society who have any strong sense of a worthwhile future. Um, You know when he wrote that? 1989 in in Britain. Uh, Like most uh, brilliant men, he was way ahead of his time uh, in understanding what was coming. But one of the claims of the Christian community is that there is a story that makes sense of all of life. Uh, Without it, we can't actually have no true meaning and true foundation for what life is really about. It's the story that Christians call the gospel. Um, And so if you're here and you're new to Christianity or uh, you're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, this is a great series and a great place for you uh, to jump into with us. And if you're here and you're struggling to make sense of your purpose and what God might have for you. And honestly, when all of us look at our lives, what, who of us have not been in a place where we're trying to figure out what we're doing with our lives and what's our purpose? This series for all of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is a great place for us to figure this out and look at it and dialogue together. Um, So Robbie opened the series a few weeks ago and took that big picture view. Um, A couple weeks, uh, a week after that, he spoke on creation Uh, The first act of the story, if you will. You know, we have a lot of industry people uh, here, so we can look at, we're thinking through things in acts and scenes uh, and climax and story. Um, So we saw God in in creation in all his perfection and all uh, his beauty and all his love creating the universe, not because he needed us, not because he needed anything, but because he loves us and he wanted to share that love with others. He made us to know him. He made us to know and love himself and then know and love others and go make a difference and do good things in the world. Uh, He made us to create and make beautiful stories like he created and made a beautiful world and put us in it. And then last week, uh, as Robbie went over Act 2, we learned about the huge conflict of the great story. Um, And that's called the fall, uh, as Robbie talked about last week. It's when We and the first humans rejected God, his loving and beautiful plan for uh, our own plan. It's when we were deceived uh, by our enemy. We believed lies about God. We chose selfishness. We chose to build our lives on something other than God, and it ruined 
everything about us and the world. It brings brokenness, it brings pain, it brings death. Um, and we feel the effects of the fall every day. One of the things, if you're involved, if you've been involved with Relay for Life, um, which is a part of the American Cancer Society, cancer is one of the clearest examples of the curse that we're under because of the fall. Cancer brings incredible suffering and pain and hardship into people's lives. And sin and rebellion to God brings destruction. But at the end of Act 2, there's a promise given. God covers Adam and Eve, even though they had sinned in their nakedness and shame, and he tells them what they've done will bring great pain and curse, but there's a promise. This is what God says, turning to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity, or struggle, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. A little confusing, a little poetic. But later in the Bible, we learn that that serpent is actually the devil himself. So God is essentially saying to Satan, Satan, you won this battle, but I'm going to win the war. Your children, what you've made of people, will only bring destruction and death. But my child is going to come from them. You will snip at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. I will win. And he says this in front of Adam and Eve. And the rest of Genesis up to chapter 12, where we're going to kind of start today, shows the story of more sin, more rebellion, more destruction, more death, and people making horrible decisions and rebelling against God and the wickedness and horrible things and brokenness that brings. Humanity is coming undone, in a sense, we see in the next few chapters. But we enter into Act 3, and we start to see God bringing his promise uh, to bring redemption and to change the whole course of history. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we, um, we need your help now. Uh, many of us in, are here and tired, especially if they were there at the relay uh, last night, so would you give us grace to understand uh, wherever we are, if we're followers of you, if we're not, would you show us who you are and show us your story and teach us through uh, the people that you first choose uh, to bring redemption through. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So by now, all of us have probably heard of the Boston Marathon bombings tragedy. I hope you have, unless you live under a rock. If you live under a rock, that's probably really uncomfortable. Um, and you've hopefully heard of the harrowing story of the pursuit of the suspects and the resulting death of one of the, of the older brother and the capture of the younger brother. Um, you know, and we obviously struggle to understand the senseless violence that we saw and affected so many lives, and they're still figuring out all the details of that case. Uh, but many of us, and hopefully most of us, if not, um, but I assume a lot of people probably haven't either, uh, may have heard about the carjacking victim that got uh, taken by the two suspects after they um, killed the police officer at MIT. Uh, and he was an integral part of uh, the suspects being uh, captured. So if you don't know, the suspects took the life of the MIT police officer, and they were on the run. They carjacked a 26-year-old Chinese uh, man who was named Danny and was going to school uh, here in the States. Actually, he was an entrepreneur. Um, but uh, there's a story in the Boston Globe, and I want to read uh, a little bit of it to you because it's just an incredible story. So here's how it goes. The 26-year-old Chinese man named Danny, in this story, entrepreneur, had just pulled over his new Mercedes to the curb on Brighton Avenue to answer a text when an old sedan swerved behind him, slamming to a stop. A man in dark clothes got out and approached the passenger window. It was nearly 11 p.m. last Thursday, or I think three Thursdays ago now. 
The man rapped on the glass, speaking quickly. Danny, unable to hear him, lowered the window, and the man reached an arm through, unlocked the door, climbed in, brandishing a silver handgun. Don't be stupid, he told Danny. He asked if he had followed the news about the previous Monday's Boston Marathon bombings. Danny had, down to the release of the grainy photos of the suspects less than six hours earlier. I did that, said the man, who would later be identified as Tamerlan Zarnayev. And I just killed a policeman in Cambridge. So the story is wild, wild to read. It was 90 minutes that he was uh, carjacked by those two brothers, and it goes through all sorts of details. Uh, but Danny does something incredibly courageous and smart. Here's how the story continues. The SUV headed for the lights of Soldier Field Road, banking across River Street to, the two, open gas, to two open gas stations. Joe Carr went to fill the younger brother, went to fill up Danny's credit, went to fill up gas using Danny's credit card, but quickly knocked on the window. Cash only, he said, at least, at least at that hour. Tamerlan peeled off $50. Danny watched Joe Carr head to the store, struggling to decide if this was his moment, until he stopped thinking about it and let reflexes kick in. I was thinking I must do two things, unfasten my seatbelt and open the door and jump out as quick as I can. If I didn't make it, he would kill me right out, and he would kill me right away, Danny said. I just did it. I did it very fast, using my left hand and right hand simultaneously to open the door, unfasten my seatbelt, jump out, and go. Danny sprinted between the passenger side of the Mercedes and the pumps and darted into the street, not looking back, drawn to the mobile station's gas lights across the street. I didn't know if it was open or not, he said. In that moment, I prayed. The brothers took off. The clerk, after brief confusion, dialed 911 on a portable phone, bringing it to bringing it to Danny in the storeroom. The dispatcher told him to take a deep breath. The officers, arriving minutes later, took his story, with Danny noting the car could be tracked by his iPhone and by a Mercedes satellite system in his car. It's just an incredible story, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's intense. And if you have a chance to look for Boston Globe um, carjacking story on Google, there's so many other details, but Danny showed incredible courage faith and awareness of that moment, right? To just go, and he saw the guy go in, and he ended up being a hero. But if it wasn't for him, we might not have captured uh, those guys. When we look at the story of God, we see stories of great faith and courage as well. We're stepping into Act 3 where God chooses a people for himself. The people will be his vehicle of accomplishing the crushing of Satan's head that we mentioned before. But leave a little hanging. Is this story mainly about people and their faith and courage, or is it about something greater? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to fly over Genesis chapters 12 to 50. We're going through the rest of Genesis. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to try and follow along. We're going to jump all over. Uh, But the scripture will be on the screen, so you're free to listen as well. Um, But we're going to quickly look at the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. So first, let's look at Abraham. Like I said before, in chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis, we see only destructive power of sin and rebellion and the things that are going wrong about what we are doing. And then all of a sudden, chapter 12, bursts on the scene. This guy named Abram, later renamed by God, Abraham, comes into view. And here's what verses 12, 1 through 3, almost out of nowhere, say. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. This man, Abram, who's living in the far-off Middle East, uh, in a while to be renamed, of course, again by God named Abraham. He is the one God's going to build his people on. Um, And look at the first thing that he tells Abram. Go from your country. Just almost seemingly out of nowhere, right? Uh, I have a map up here. We'll stick up there to kind of give us a little more uh, context for where it's at. On the far end... Uh, you'll see where Abraham was. He was on the very left of the screen near Babylon uh, out there, and you see the red line. It might be hard to see from there, but the red line kind of goes up and over the middle of uh, the Middle East there, and he comes back down into Canaan, what would later be Israel. But this is an incredibly long journey that God calls Abraham to take. It's about 1,000 miles, uh, which even for us now is a long, long time, and he has to take all his possessions his wife, and everything he has across those crazy deserts and incredibly difficult situations. Um, And we're not talking about Southwest Airlines here, okay? It's not just like, hey, go over here a thousand miles away and take a plane, and, you know, moving your stuff is going to be a problem. But we're talking about walking and walking and walking and walking and animals and livestock and your possession and what the animals and livestock do along the way. Lots of things that we don't, you know, want to step in. And so this thousand miles, huge journey, incredible thing that God asked Abraham to do. And can you imagine, this, this makes me laugh, this isn't recorded in scripture, but can you imagine what Abraham told Sarah, you know, how he brought this up? You know, just think, uh, honey, um, so a God we don't know uh, just uh, spoke to me uh, and he told us we're going to uproot our whole lives and the wealth, and we're going to go to the other side of the world. Is that cool with you? Okay, great. Also, he's going to make us a great nation. All right? Okay, let's go. You know, it's just like uh, unbelievable. I can't even imagine, uh, you know, what her face would have been like, huh? You know, we, uh, many of you know, uh, we moved uh, from Tucson over here about a year ago now. Uh, and so uh, we're SoCal natives originally, but uh, spent the last five years before moving here. Uh, in the desert, in the wilderness, our own, uh, if you will. Um, But it's about a 500-mile drive to get to Tucson from here, so it's not uh, incredibly hard. But we had a house, uh, we have a daughter, uh, and we had a house full of stuff. And as, you know, God would have it, we were moving in May. And May is not 62 uh, in Tucson, in case you're wondering. May is very hot. It was the middle of May as well, and so it's just uh, grossly hot. So when we were actually packing up the whole truck and leaving our house, you know, it was the last time we're going to leave this house we lived in for five years. So I wanted to be, like, really sentimental and think about all God had done and everything. But I was like, this is friggin' hot. We need to get out of here. And I was like, let's get in the truck and let's go because I know how long this is going to be. Uh, we actually went to live with my parents for a while, Lisa's parents for a while. We went up to Fresno to see with other family. And we were raising funds to come here. And so we didn't actually get here until October um, and that, so it was crazy. If, if any of you have done a cross-country or a cross-state or anything move, even cross-city can be, you know, a huge pain uh, in the whatever. Uh, it's, it's crazy. So imagine, you know, ancient times, what God asked Abraham to do in this situation. Incredible. And God says he's going to do something great through Abraham. He's going to make a nation. And not just a nation. He's going to bless. He's going to make a nation. Then he's going to use that nation to bless Every single people group, every single color of skin, every single language someday. Incredible thing, he tells Abraham. He's going to start with him. A few chapters later in Genesis 15, God tells this to Abraham. This is years after that first 
promise and call he gives to him. This is what he says. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. This is Genesis 15.1. Your reward should be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. It's kind of hard to make a nation if you have no kids. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, look in the sky, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God tells Abraham all those years before, I'm going to make you a great nation. And God returns to him and reminds him of that promise and tells him some great things. And Abraham essentially goes, uh, God, uh, have you noticed what's missing in this whole great nation, lots of uh, offspring thing? Kids, I have none. And my servant in my house is going to inherit everything I have. I have no kids, especially a male heir. What's going on here? And God gently, instead of smacking Abraham around, uh, which is what I would probably do if I was God, but God gently brings Abraham out and says, walk outside with me, Abraham. And he shows him all the stars. Now, uh, living in L.A., and we, this is hard for us to understand, right? Imagine if God, you know, imagine Abraham being in L.A. and God brings him out and he goes, look at the stars, Abraham. This is how great your descendants will be. And Abraham goes, okay, one. I'll have one. One descendant. Wonderful. Uh, no, but this is, let's put a picture up. I have a starry sky that's probably a little bit more like what Abraham saw. So, you know, there's the Milky Way you can see. So this is probably something more what Abraham saw. You know, stars across the entire skyline. And God says, look, I'm going to do this, Abraham. Trust me. Believe me. And we see the greatest act that Abraham ever really did in his life. He believed God, and it was credited to him. He was counted to him as righteousness. That verse, it, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, is a, one of the most important verses in all the Bible, really. It's quoted four times in the New Testament. Um, incredible passage. Uh, notice all that Abraham did to become righteous. What did he do? Did he go do a whole lot of things and go do a whole lot of works? No. It says he believed, and God made him holy, forgiven, righteous. This is important. This is the same thing that happens today with anyone who decides to become a follower of Jesus for the first time. Uh, you may be here, and you may think uh, Christianity is essentially about obeying God and what he says. Uh, and maybe you're here to even start that process. Maybe you're kind of on your own journey um, and you're checking out Jesus and things like that. Or maybe you're here and you're skeptical of this whole religious deal in the first place. Uh, organized religion is suspect as it is. So why would I want to start out on a whole new set of rules to follow? Well, Abraham's faith we see here, God making him righteous through him believing, shows us it's not about that at all. Uh, Christianity is about hearing the promises of God given to us all he's done and trusting that. Out of that trust and out of seeing all that God's done and out of that belief comes obedience and leading a good life. But it's not that faith, it's that faith that makes you a Christian. It's not the obedience that comes from it that makes you a Christian or a follower of Jesus. It's that same faith that leads us to do great things for God just like we see God using Abraham to do. Look at how the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, thousands of years later, talks about Abraham's faith 
This is what he says in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that had its foundations, whose designer and builder was God. Abraham gives us an amazing example of faith. And the book of Hebrews also commends Sarah, his wife, uh, for her faith when she was so old and them not having kids as well, which we won't have time to get into, but she had incredible faith as well. This is a faith that we're called to have. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, God calls you to believe and trust and look what he's done. See what he's done. If you are a follower of Jesus, he says, continue looking to me, continue trusting me, continue to looking to my promises so that out of that, obedience will come. Let's turn a page to Jacob. A few chapters later, what happens to Abraham and Sarah through some miraculous means, uh, if you know the story, but we don't have time, God finally provides a son named Isaac, and God repeats his promise to Isaac uh, that he will bless uh, Isaac, he will make his descendants great, he will give him a great nation and bless all the nations through Isaac now. And eventually Isaac finds a wife, Rebecca, and they have two sons named Jacob and Esau. And this is a story to tell. And if you have time, you should go back and look at these two brothers. Uh, Jacob and Esau were literally fighting with each other in the womb and from the womb on. It says they actually were like, you know, punching each other uh, when they were pregnant together. But when, yeah, there you go. You get what I mean. Um, that was a little awkward. Jacob, after they're born, ends up tricking his brother Esau into giving him his birthright, some of his inheritance. Um, he deceives his brother and, you know, is just a jerk to him. And, of course, that doesn't make Esau too happy. Later, Isaac is on his deathbed. Um, he's blind. He can't see. And he's going to give his blessings to his sons, which it's very hard for us to understand. But in ancient times, a blessing from your father, and if you were the firstborn like Esau was, was everything. To get the blessing and to get the inheritance and get everything from your father was huge. So Esau was owed the greater blessing because he was the older son, and that's how you passed on your land and inheritance. Uh, but what happens is that Isaac is blind. J- Jacob listens to his mother. This family is very dysfunctional. Uh, and uh, goes and lies to his father, uh, gets Esau's blessing, does this whole deceitful scheme. Um, and so we just get this picture of Jacob being a really great guy, right? He's just incredible. Uh, but God has plans for Jacob. He kind of gives him some of his own medicine when Jacob falls in love um, with a certain woman, and he gets deceived by the woman's father, and so God kind of takes him through his own uh, butt-kicking and says, hey, how do you like this deceit thing? I'll do it to you and see how you feel. Uh, And then in the most memorable moment, again, we're doing big flyover, um, of Jacob's life, he uh, ends up having 12 kids. Uh, He has two wives, and his brother Esau is still incredibly angry at him, and at this point, he's trying to kill him. And we enter in uh, here in this part of the story, and this is what it says. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. 
for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of the hip. So, mysterious story, very hard to understand. Uh, but Jacob here is essentially wrestling with and struggling with, most, most commentators say, with a pre-incarnation God, of God. Uh, this is Jesus, essentially, many say. Some say it's an angel, uh, you know, hard to tell, but uh, pretty sure um, it's probably a pre-incarnation account before Jesus came. It's him. We don't have all the details about exactly what Jacob understood, and it's obviously the story is very poetic in a sense and mysterious, but by the end, Jacob knew he was wrestling with God because he says, I've seen God face to face, and I was spared. And Jacob won't let go of him. And this is really, this is a commendable thing for Jacob. Remember, he is a cheat, he is a liar, he is a thief, and yet he knows he needs God, and he won't let go of him. God puts his hip out of joint, forever giving him the reminder of his need for God, and he leaves with a limp at the end of the battle. But he's got a limp, and he knows God and has God's blessing. Soon after this, Esau, trying to chase him down and kill him, catches up with his brother, and you get this incredible picture of instead of trying to kill his brother, Esau embraces him. And all of a sudden, the curse that Jacob was under, in a sense, God has changed his fortunes after he's met God and knows him, an incredible redemptive picture. There are so many lessons here that we don't have time uh, to get into, but let's leave it at this for now. Knowing God doesn't mean you won't wrestle with him. Knowing God doesn't mean life will be easy. In fact, the opposite is often promised in the scriptures. Indeed, God will also often wrestle with us until we give in. He may even give us some limps along the way, but he's worth it in the end. The story of Jacob teaches us, in the end, holding on to God will never leave you disappointed. In the end. In the middle, he may give us limps, and it may be hard to see, but in the end, he'll hold on to this. He'll hold on to us. From Jacob's kids come the 12 tribes of Israel. God builds his, he's building his people on the backs of these men and women. The people of God are becoming a nation. God is fulfilling his promises. So let's quickly go to Joseph at the end of uh, Genesis. So Joseph is really famous in the kids' books and the kids' Bibles because his father really likes him the best. Jacob likes him the best, or Israel at this point. God renames Jacob Israel, which is, again, showing he's building his people. Uh, Israel loves Joseph the best, and so he gives him a, a, a technicolor dream coat. Uh, if you're, not everyone may get the uh, reference. If you're under 30, you're probably like, huh? Um, but, you know, older people, or if you're a theater uh, major or something, you're in the industry, you probably know about the Broadway show. Uh, but here's the verses where that happens, Genesis 37, 3 and 4. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. He was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. It would look really different today if you went out in a robe, rainbow-colored robe, out on the street. You would get a different impression. But back then, it meant wealth and an incredible blessing. Uh, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him 
and could not speak peacefully to him. And then God gives Joseph a couple dreams. And essentially what happens is in the dreams that God sees his 11 brothers bowing down. God. Joseph sees his 11 brothers bowing down to him and his father and his whole family as well and serving him. And so like all young boys, Joseph is really humble about this dream. And he kind of keeps it to himself. And he says, wow, I wonder what that means. And then he goes about his business. No. That's not what happens. Uh, This is what happens. Joseph goes, hey, guess what, guys? Guess what, brothers? Um, I had these awesome dreams where all of you guys are bowing down to me and serving me. Uh, Isn't that amazing? (laughs) And uh, you can imagine how his brothers felt about that. Even after this is after the whole, he gets the special coat, and now here comes this punk young brother, and he's talking about how we're going to serve him. This is ridiculous. And so they craft a scheme to kill him. you You continue to see the destruction of... Uh, the pattern of destruction that people <laughs> uh, form here. But one of his brothers gets them to change their mind, and they actually end up selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Nice alternative to death, I guess, but uh, you know, still not wonderful. Uh, this, this is really, I don't know why this hasn't been made into a modern movie recently anyway. Maybe there's some older ones. But this is just an incredible story. Joseph goes down to Egypt, and what happens, he's got so much integrity. He ends up being such a good worker And the verses say God caused everything that Joseph did to go well. Um, He rose to several positions of power. And what happens, um, he ends up serving one of the Egyptian officials that's high up. That Egyptian official's wife, named uh, Potiphar's wife, is is how she's uh, uh, called in this. Um, She fancies uh, Joseph, to use a a British word. People use that. Um, She likes him a lot. She tries to sleep with him two times. He flees, runs away, shows incredible integrity, incredible character. Um, He remains steadfast. He gets thrown in jail. She falsely accuses him and says, he tried to do whatever to me. He gets thrown in jail, and he stays steadfast and keeps trusting God. God gives Pharaoh a freaky dream about famine, and he gives this whole cows eating other cows thing. It's very complex. You can go read it. Um, but Pharaoh can't figure out what does this dream mean, and eventually it gets back to Joseph. Someone says, Joseph can interpret these dreams. Joseph, God gives Joseph wisdom. He interprets the dream to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, you're absolutely amazing. I'm going to put you second in charge of the entire country. <laughs> and so Joseph goes from jail, from being a foreigner to, to just under Pharaoh's authority, and he's in control of the entire, second in command of the entire uh, country in Egypt. Incredible account of God using Joseph and his integrity. And essentially what happens eventually due to the famine in Israel, in the land uh, uh, where uh, Joseph was, his whole family ends up coming down to Egypt. And his brothers, of course, and his father think he's dead, and they have no idea that he's risen to this place of power, and they don't recognize him when they first see him. It's this incredible, dramatic picture. But Joseph doesn't immediately say who he is. His brothers come, bow down to him because of the famine and, and other things. In the end, Joseph reveals himself surprisingly, and there's this huge, you know, everyone's weeping and crying, and you're alive, and da-da-da. Um, and the whole family ends up moving down. To Egypt, the whole people of God at this point end up being provided for because uh, of Joseph's integrity. God's people don't go hungry because Joseph has so much integrity. Jacob eventually dies uh, at the end of the book of Genesis, but the book ends showing that God has provided for his people. He has been kind. He's established his people 
um, and they are now in Egypt. This eventually, of course, leads into 400 years later in slavery uh, with Egypt. At this point, God's people are uh, in good shape. It's another great lesson for us today about integrity. Integrity is worth it at all costs. Joseph shows us that even when God allows horrible things to happen to us, uh, if we have integrity, it'll be worth it in the end, uh, and he will cause us to prosper in the end. So we see these stories, we see great faith, we see holding on to God, and we see great integrity. And God using those three things to really build his people uh, to bring his promise about. But we would be doing injustice to the story if we stop there and close the curtain on Act 3. Because like the story of the Boston bombing and the carjacking victim, his amazing courage, we wouldn't be seeing the full story of that story if we didn't see the providence behind it. The car almost being out of gas that they pick up, having to go to a gas station, the gas station that takes cash only so that he has to go in and can't use the credit card, the iPhone staying in the car afterwards so the police can track it, the gas station across the street being open and the clerk taking him in, incredible providence behind that. Many sermons are uh, like that in a sense where they stop short of the big picture. Many sermons would look at Abraham and go, look at Abraham, he's so faithful, go be like him, go have great faith. Or look at Jacob, look how he held on to God, go hold on to God too and don't let go of him. Or look how much integrity Joseph had, go have integrity like Joseph and God will bless you. But if we stop there, we're stopping at religion. We're stopping at moralism. Look at this example, go be like him. That's essentially what every religion says. That would not be enough. We don't just need an example of how to live. We need someone to defeat our sin and the destruction our sin causes. We need someone to crush Satan's head. We need someone to defeat death. Only God can do that. So where's God as we wrap up in these stories? Let's go backwards. Joseph. The key verses of the whole story of Joseph come at the very end in Genesis 50, and this is what they say. As uh, his brothers come back, Jacob dies at this point. His brothers, again, are fearful Joseph's going to kill them uh, because they had him sold into slavery. And this is what he said. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it evil. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The real lesson of Joseph is not how much integrity he had, though that was great, but that God was sovereignly behind all the horrible things that happened to Joseph, behind his brother's betrayal, behind the famine, behind the Potiphar's wife accusing him and putting him in jail, to bring about good purposes, to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to provide for his people. Unless we think Joseph is a great hero, remember how he boasted before his brothers? Joseph is not sinless. He's not this wonderful, perfect hero, Superman, that has no faults. Uh, He wasn't humble about it. He was a punk kid. He had amazing integrity later on, and God used him. But he had pride and sin that needed to be taken care of as well. Joseph is not the hero. God is. And that's an amazing scripture, those lines of verse uh, verse 20, chapter 50. They really meant to do evil to him. Potiphar's wife really meant to do evil to him. And they really did evil to him. 
but God really was actually doing it and using it all for good. Incredible. Don't you see what this means? Not, for Joseph, not just for Joseph, but for us. There is no evil thing, no evil person, no natural disaster, no loss of job or anything that can ultimately happen to you if you are in Jesus and if you know him that God is not using in meaning for your good in the end. Joseph teaches us that God will not just work out the good things of our lives, he'll work out the worst things of our lives for our good. In the New Testament, it says this in Romans 8, after Jesus. Knowing all these things and all these horrible things that can happen to us, we're more than conquerors through him, Jesus, who loved us. And very famous verses, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor Potiphar's wife, nor brothers who hate you, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What about Jacob? Jacob teaches us to hold on to God at all costs, right? But is that the greatest lesson? You know, the story of Jacob is just one huge loudspeaker of God into our ear to remember it's not about how good we are, but about how good God is to hold on to us. Because you can't look at Jacob and go, man, what an awesome guy. It's not primarily about all our ability to hang on to God, but that he amazingly continues and promises to hang on to us. Jacob was the ultimate liar, deceived his brothers, deceived his father, stole from his brothers. He was a thief. How should a just and holy God deal with him? Destroy him, get rid of him, say, I'm not going to use your for my plan, you for my plan, I'm getting someone else. Yeah, that would be how it was if God worked on merit. But Jacob teaches us that God works on grace. The amazing thing about grace, free gift, free favor, it doesn't matter how conservative you are. It doesn't matter how moral your life is. Grace accepts you in the worst of who you are. And grace changes your heart, just like it did for Jacob. And the reality is, we are actually all Jacobs in our hearts. Think about it. All of us have cheated God in some way. All of us have loved other things far more than him. All of us have tried to gain our blessing from money, family, kids, our image, how we look, our jobs, our status. We're all Jacobs, yet God holds on to us by his grace if you're a follower of him. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here, the Jacob story is an amazing invitation to come to him. There is nothing so bad that you've ever done that cannot be forgiven by his grace. Because grace doesn't look at the list of how bad you've done. Grace tears up the list and gets rid of it. Jacob teaches us God holds on to his family through grace. Lastly, Abraham. Wonderful story of Abraham. He's got amazing faith. And God uses that faith to build his people, to be the founding father of the people. But Abraham was not a wonderful hero, if you read the rest of it as well. Uh, we'd be sorely mistaken if we saw him as the hero of the story. He has great failings on top of his great faith. At one point when he's down in Egypt... He's afraid Pharaoh is going to think his wife, Sarah, is really attractive and he's going to want her. So he's like, uh, this is bad. I'll get killed. I'm going to tell him you're my, you're my sister, and then we'll go on from there. So Abraham, in a sense, uh, has had all these promises God has given him, but he doesn't really trust God. He's not believing God will protect him in the whole. 
later after God has made two more covenants with Abraham and promised him so much, he does it again with another king and lies to, <laughs> lies to the king and says, this is my sister, so don't have anything to do with me or think she has anything to do with me. Um, though he's been given so much grace, so much promise, he still doesn't trust God completely to protect him. Pretty familiar to our stories, right? We've been given so much, and yet we still fail. Later in Genesis 15, after the part that we saw, God makes a covenant or a binding agreement with Abraham in this incredibly wild, awesome story. After he's shown Abraham all the stars, this is what God does. He tells Abraham to take several animals, cut them in two, sacrifice them, and put them uh, on essentially each side of uh, an aisle. It's gross to us. We don't do animal sacrifices, thankfully, (laughs) nowadays, but ancient peoples did them all the time. In the ancient Near East, when a greater king would take over a lesser king, they would do something like this. They would have a ceremony, a covenant ceremony. They'd split some animals, and the lesser king would have to walk through the animals, signifying, if I disobey you, greater king, who are taking me over, if I disobey you and go against the terms of this covenant, let it be done to me what was done to these animals here. So he walks through, and the greater king looks over, sees it, gives approval, the covenant's made, and then those people are taken under protection of the greater king. But what does God do here? God does something incredible. God, the greater king, comes to Abraham, and in this story, it says he puts Abraham to sleep. So Abraham's not even active in this covenant. The lesser king would usually walk through the middle, but he puts Abraham to sleep. Then God sends a smoking pot through the animals that Abraham has split, signifying his own presence, representing himself going through the animals. So what is God saying to Abraham? God is saying to Abraham, if I'm not faithful to you, Abraham, may it be that I'm torn to pieces like these animals here. I will never let you go, Abraham, no matter what you do. And Abraham, the lesser king, sits there asleep and just watches God. Promise, promise, promise. This is how the gospel works. This is the message of Christianity. Promise, promise, promise. God says, I will, I will, I will, grace, grace, grace. Now trust me. Now believe. So many of us have this picture that faith is me working up in myself. I gotta really try hard. I gotta believe you. I gotta believe you. The whole point of faith is to look at what he's done. Look at how good he's been. Look at the promises. And you'll probably find yourself believing. No wonder Abraham believed God. He had seen these incredible promises given to him. Faith isn't about believing more. It's about looking more at Jesus and looking more at God and what he's done. Are you starting to see the Bible's not a book of a bunch of heroes? It's a book of, uh, a, book of a bunch of semi-faithful failures who God rescues and is gracious to. The Bible's about God and his goodness. Lastly, in closing... Before we close out scene three here, or this part of scene three, act three, we've seen how God chooses the people for himself to start his rescue plan. But the rescue plan eventually culminates in Jesus. Jesus, after his resurrection, told his disciples all the Old Testament is ultimately pointing to him. There's a verse in Luke that says uh, Jesus walked them through and said, everything in the Old Testament points back to me in a sense, and then it says he told them how. So how do these stories point to Jesus? Quickly, Joseph. 
Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who had true integrity his entire life without an ounce of pride. And when the people meant to do the worst evil to him by killing him on the cross, God was working the greatest good imaginable for the entire world, not just for Abraham's family. Like Joseph providing for his entire family, Jesus, by his death and resurrection for our sins, provides for his family, all those who are followers of Jesus, for all eternity by giving grace upon grace to us again and again and again. How about Jacob? Jacob is the true, Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who did not deceive, lie, and steal to get his blessing from his father, but served him faithfully and loved his father wholly. Jesus wrestled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer, and on the cross, he did not let go of his father, even though his father turned his face from him. His father didn't just take out his hip, he took out his whole life on the cross. In the end, Jesus did it to hold on to us so that he wouldn't lose us, and he would save us completely. What about Abraham? Jesus is the true and better Abraham who trusted God completely, left the comfort of his own land, not just to travel a thousand miles, but left the comfort of perfect heaven with his father to travel the uncrossable distance to earth. He never once feared man like Abraham did, but he loved us wholly even to death. And on the cross, God did not tear up animals to keep his promise, but God tore up his own son to keep his promise and his faithfulness to us. Jesus is the true firstborn brother, the true father, whose descendants are from every tribe, every nation, every language, not by physical birth, but by spiritual birth, all flowing from grace. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan and promise to Abraham all those years ago that he will make a great nation and bless every nation through it. Don't you see all he's done for us? Isn't it amazing what he's done for us? Don't you see all that you have in Jesus? How can you move towards him today? If you're near him, how can you trust him more? Maybe it's reading the word. Maybe it's taking steps in obedience. If you've never trusted him, do you see what he's done? Do you see how good he is? As Steve comes up and we close uh, the scene on Act 3 here, uh, let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, that we get to look back on scripture that is greater than 5,000 years old that is a time frame we can hardly even fathom, God, but yet it speaks to us today how you promised yourself to be faithful to a man named Abraham and that you would bless every nation through him. Thank you for Jesus who is the fulfillment of all those things and that we are the recipients of all that grace and all that promise. Help us to see and learn from these men, but ultimately learn you're the hero who rescues us utterly. And let us praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.